1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Given that global trade has had something of a tumultuous year, you might expect that shipping companies would be having a tough time. Not so. The notoriously behind the curve industry seems to be navigating the rough seas just fine. On the other hand, museums are struggling, and now's the time if you're in the market for some high-end art. Many are selling off some of their finest works. We look into how art's cultural value can be overlooked or undersold in times of crisis. But first... This weekend, New Zealand's Labour Party swept to a fairy tale victory. The
2: stage, the and still the
0: Prime Minister of New Zealand, the
1: Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern beamed as a rapturous crowd applauded, beginning her speech with a thankful Maori greeting. Ms. Ardern promised a big tent kind of administration.
0: And governing for every New Zealander has never been so important more than it has been now. We are living in an increasingly polarized world, a place where more and more people have lost the ability to see one another's point of view.
1: Having come in for criticism during the campaign on failing to address housing shortages and poverty, she acknowledged there were difficulties ahead.
0: And over the next three years, there is much work to do. We will build back better from the COVID crisis. Better, stronger, with an answer to the many challenges New Zealand already faced.
1: Challenges or no, the scale of the win came as a surprise even to her supporters.
3: Probably the easiest way of describing it is that it was unparalleled in modern New Zealand history.
1: Eleanor Whitehead is our Australia and New Zealand correspondent.
3: So the Labour Party, which is Jacinda Ardern's party, won 49% of the vote. And that was compared to nearly 27% for the main opposition, uh, which is called the National Party, which is Conservative. That is the best result, Labour's result, for any party since the 50s. And it gives it a majority of seats in Parliament. And that is the first time that any party has been able to govern on its own under New Zealand's system of uh, proportional representation, which has been in place since 1996. So they were winning in both kind of provincial, rural, conservative strongholds and in rich city areas. And to give you a sense, uh, New Zealanders vote for both a preferred party and an MP on their ballots. uh, And Labour topped the preferred party vote in 68 of its 72 constituencies. So a really astounding result for them.
1: And what was the the campaign like?
3: The campaign was focused on pretty much only one subject, which was the government's response to the coronavirus. It was really a referendum on how the government, and I think in voters' eyes particularly, the prime minister has responded to the virus. Uh, that response was to shut down the borders, first to China and then to the rest of the world, and then to rally support for what was a very, very strict lockdown in New Zealand at the beginning of the pandemic. And so barring a brief resurgence, it's pretty much succeeded. Only 25 people have died and that was really what the campaign focused on. You know, the fact that life has been able to return roughly to normal. You know, people are eating out, people are cramming into restaurants in their normal numbers. There were 46,000 people watching a rugby match against Australia this weekend. So um, the campaign was very much focused on that response and the opposition kind of found it quite difficult to find ground on which to oppose the government.
1: And so this Scale of that result then is just a reflection of how satisfied everyone has been with the, the response to the pandemic.
3: Yeah, I think that is the singular issue. Of It's worth remembering that before the pandemic hit... Um, Labour was looking, the polls were suggesting that Labour was on track to lose this election. It would have been a one-term government, which is not very common in New Zealand. Jacinda Ardern's always been lauded overseas, particularly for the way that she responded to the Christchurch terrorist attacks. They were in March last year when those two mosques were attacked uh, by a white supremacist. And she was obviously hailed for the way she united uh, New Zealanders after that and staunchly defended immigrants. But that adulation wasn't really reflected back at home until the pandemic hit.
1: So so was this a vote for her or a vote for the party and its
3: policies? I think it's got a lot to do with her and not a great deal to do with the party and its policies. So it was a a campaign that was thin on uh, policy on both sides, uh, both from national and Labour, but I think it was a, you know, as I said, a referendum on the, the prime minister's response uh, to the coronavirus. Even her staunchest opponents admit that she's a very gifted communicator, particularly in times of crisis. And I think young people particularly look up to her. Uh, she has a kind of unpretentious approachability that I think that a lot of uh, Kiwis like. And political analysts in New Zealand will say that it's very much a politics of personality though she wasn't always as popular at home as she was overseas, I think that Kiwis do derive a kind of sense of pride from her global standing as well, so in a way that has served her well at home. Um, I was speaking to one academic who said that her brilliance lies in the way she plays into their sense of exceptionalism, Um, and Kiwis have always liked to think that they're set apart by more than their geography and that they punch above their weight.
1: But what about apart from the personality and crisis management and so on? What about sort of kitchen table politics?
3: Yeah, this is where um, Jacinda Ardern and the Labour government comes in for a lot of criticism. Because when she came to power in 2017... Labour was making a lot of very lofty promises to do things like reduce child poverty. It was going to end homelessness in New Zealand. It was going to build 100,000 affordable houses in 10 years uh, and kind of generally make New Zealand a fairer, better country. And it's pretty much failed to deliver on every single one of those things, the Prime Minister's critics will point out that on most counts of poverty and social inequality, New Zealand is actually heading backwards. The house prices are increasing at the moment in New Zealand. They've been increasing through the crisis. So this is a big, big criticism of her detractors that she is uh, great at moving and motivational speeches, but quite a poor administrator and hasn't actually got much done. Um, So that might explain why this time around, there weren't kind of such lofty promises. It was all rather more timid. Um, But she's still got a strong base of supporters on the left who are going to be expecting her to do a lot more, uh, particularly now she's not in um she's, she's not having to form a coalition, particularly now that she can govern on her own.
1: And so to your mind, the, the big difference then between the, the first term and this coming second term is that that, she, that Labour will be governing alone.
3: Yeah, that is the big difference. And with governing alone comes a lot more responsibility. There is still a chance that Labour could form some kind of coalition with the Greens, although they don't need them. Uh, it might be handy to have the Greens inside the government so they're not uh, heckling from the sidelines. Um, so that could either be a formal coalition or a more informal arrangement in which the Greens vote with Labour only on certain issues. So a much stronger position and a lot more pressure with it this time around.
1: But what about fulfilling all those promises uh, in light of the economic situation? I mean, New Zealand certainly must have suffered economically from the pandemic, if if not quite so much as elsewhere in terms of the human cost.
3: It is in a recession now. The economy is going to contract by about 6% this year. Unemployment is rising. The wage subsidy there is coming off. So while New Zealand has done very well at keeping the virus out... There are going to be lots more questions about what that has cost it and how it is going to drive a recovery, how it's going to get out of that mess. So the prime minister says that there is a plan for recovery, which includes things like building lots of roads. But to her opponents, it all looks quite incremental. Um, they point out that there are no big plans for tax reform, for example, uh, the just There are just some income tax hikes, but only on the top 2% of workers. Um, So theoretically, you might think that with such a strong majority, they would push a more radical agenda. But there aren't many people in New Zealand that see that. So to be so popular, you've got to be fairly uncontroversial.
1: Eleanor, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. For more analysis like this from our correspondents all over the world, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com/intelligenceoffer. The link is in the show notes.
0: Selling a little or a lot? because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/work. shopify.com/work.
1: Every year, container ships of various sorts shift about 90% of the world's traded goods, from car parts to Christmas lights, from iron ore to crude oil. It's no surprise that the pandemic caused the global volume of shipped goods to plummet. The surprising part is that shipping companies may do better than usual this year.
2: The shipping industry relies on growth in global trade for its own business. And you would expect that the slowdown in global trade would cause problems.
1: Simon Wright is The Economist's industry editor.
2: In fact, for most segments of the shipping industry, this is going to be an OK year. And for container shipping, it's going to be a bumper year of profits.
1: So how does the dynamic in the industry compare with other years, you know, non-pandemic years?
2: Well, the industry has fed off decades of growth in the volumes of global trade. The only time they went into reverse was in 2009 in the aftermath of the financial crisis. That's going to happen again this year. Volumes are expected to fall by 4.4%. Last year, the shipping industry carried 11.9 billion tons of goods. That's 1.6 tons for everyone on the planet. That's not going to go up this year. It was expected to go up by 3%. But as I say, it's going to fall. That you would think would be a bad thing for the shipping industry who feed off that growth.
1: But you say the industry is set for a bumper year this time around. I mean, what's different?
2: Well look, certainly the container shipping industry is set for record profits and that's not what you'd expect. And this is an industry that goes from boom to bust and is generally in a state of bust. Now why is it different this time? Well. It goes back to the reaction of the shipping companies, to what's happened over the past decade. The growth before the financial crisis encouraged shipping companies to order ships hand over fist. It's what the normal reaction to a good year is to order ships. These ships turn up several years later after they've been built, and they turn up to a different market. Quite often the cycle has already turned, and so this glut of ships increases supply and pushes down rates even further. What's happened is that the container shipping industry has become consolidated over about the past 20 years. In 2016, the top seven companies, I think, had about 55% of the market. Now they have something like 70% of the market. So what happened is that they were able to control the supply of ships. And what they did was overreact. The expectation was that global trade might fall by anything up to 30%, but it's only going to be down by about 4%. They took an enormous volume of ships off the market, and so supply was constrained. And so the rates those ships were able to command shot upwards. How high have they gone? In particular, the route from China to America's west coast is the one where we've seen record highs. They're up by 127% since last year. And that's because the bounce back of uh, the American imports has been much stronger than expected. The port of Long Beach in California reported its busiest August ever. Now, look, at the height of the crisis, about 12% of the global fleet was idled. Now, only around 3% is, uh, is idled. But because the bounce back has been far stronger than expected, rates are still very, very high. But the rates are only super high for the container shipping industry. If you look at oil tankers and the dry bulk industry, ships that carry things like iron ore, coal and grain, that's slightly different. How so? Oil tankers are expecting also to turn a profit this year. And remember, this is an industry where break-even or losses are the norm. Oil tankers will do well because of what happened in the oil market earlier in the year when the OPEC Plus agreement broke down and oil flooded onto the market. Storage for oil was quickly used up on land. And so what oil traders did was hire tankers at extremely high rates to store oil so that they could then sell it when the prices recovered. The price for a very large cruise carrier, one of the biggest sort of tankers, leapt up from $6,500 a day to $224,000 a day at one point. And so that's one reason why the tanker industry will have a reasonable year. The dry bulk industry will do okay as well, because China is an incredibly important component of this. About 40% of the world dry bulk cargoes end up in China. And the Chinese economy has recovered fairly swiftly. So the volumes of coal and iron ore going into China have crept back up to uh, previous levels. So the rates they can charge are also much higher. But the problem for the tanker and the dry vault shipping industry is they can't control volumes like the container industry. Those two sectors of the industry are not nearly as consolidated. They don't have the ability to control capacity like the container shipping industry.
1: Do you think the industry will resist the temptation to buy loads of ships while times are good?
2: In the decade before the global financial crisis, there was a massive ordering of new ships. After the global financial crisis, demand grew 50%, the fleet grew 100%, and that's pretty much how it normally goes in shipping. But this time it does look different, and it's not because of a newfound sobriety, particularly by the container shipping industry, though there might be a little bit of that involved. It's new environmental rules. The International Maritime Organization wants carbon emissions to halve by the industry relative to 2008 by 2050. But it hasn't really said what the pathway will be, and the technology hasn't really been established. So no one is really ordering many new ships. That's because people buying ships are unclear about whether their ship could be obsolete well before its 25-year lifespan is up. So that's what's really holding back ordering this time. And it's just possible that that won't last. The question now is whether the industry has learnt from the last year about controlling capacity and not over-ordering. You'd like to think they have, but it's not entirely clear that they won't go back to their old ways.
1: Simon, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Earlier this month, the Baltimore Museum of Art in Maryland said it would sell three of its artworks worth around $65 million, including Andy Warhol's depiction of The Last Supper. The museum argued that the extra cash was necessary since the pandemic had upended the arts. The fund, it said, would be used to update and care for its collections, mostly. Now, donors are calling for the government to investigate the sale. Baltimore's is far from the only museum looking to offload some of its collection. Across America, around $100 million worth is set to go on the auction block in the coming weeks, including works from Pollock, Picasso and Matisse.
4: Museums keep, they conserve, they look after the collections that people leave to them or give to them over a period of time. Fiametta Rocco is our culture correspondent. So any issue about the value that's put on that kind of culture is always incredibly fraught. Now, when times get hard, some people in museums always come back to that old idea of perhaps they should sell some of the family silver.
1: And what are the general rules and conventions around selling the family silver?
4: The people who make these rules understand that collections need to be rebalanced or brought up to date in somehow. And that's why they do allow for some sales. Deaccessioning is the word that they use for it. The rules basically state that whatever money is gained from such sales should really be put back into fresh acquisitions, not used to balance the budget when times are hard. But in April this year, pushed by the pandemic, the AAMD, the Association of Art Museum Directors, agreed to a year-long loosening of their rules. If museums sold any part of their collection, they wouldn't have to funnel all the money back into new acquisitions, but they'd be allowed to use it for what they called direct care of the collection. So far, eight museums have signed up to this, including the Brooklyn Museum in New York and the Baltimore Museum of Art, along with museums in California, Indiana, Texas, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York. And what about outside America? Well, it's happening there too. We're having a lot of conversations in Britain about this particular issue. The Royal Opera House, not a museum, but a cultural institution that owns a lot of works of art, is considering selling its David Hockney, hopes it's going to make £18 million from that. And the Royal Academy, even more worryingly, is considering selling its Michelangelo Tondo, which it's had for centuries in the hope that that will save 150 jobs.
1: But keeping the doors open surely isn't a contentious issue. I mean, what what are the donors in Baltimore complaining about?
4: They're afraid that works are sold improperly or they're not sold for enough money. And in Baltimore, where they're selling a beautiful Bryce Marden, a painting by Clifford Stilp, one of the finest of the abstract expressionists, and also an Andy Warhol of The Last Supper, People are up in arms about this. Now, if you sell at auction, there is a measure of transparency, a measure of the fact that this is being done in public in a straightforward way. But the Warhol is being sold privately, apparently for $43 million. And what is worrying the people who are the opponents of this sale is that in 2017, a similar picture from the same series sold at Christie's at auction for over $60 million. So the issue there is not simply about selling, but it's about whether it's being sold too cheaply.
1: And there is this wider debate, as you say, about how to value these works, whether they're getting good value in tough times.
4: I think it's very important for trustees, if they are to retain the trust of the public, to make sure that this is done in as transparent a way as possible. Nobody wants museums to become bottomless repositories of works of art that are never put on display, that are just kept in the cellars. So selling does have to happen occasionally. It just has to be done in the full knowledge that trustees are exercising their fiduciary duty towards the institution and the public that visits and pays for it.
1: Fiametta, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thank you, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow.